Gracie, that was awesome. That was the coolest rendition of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen I've ever heard. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that we can be reminded of, of your grace and of the joy that you offer, of the peace that you have provided. You remind us of that in your word. You remind us of that through the, the mouths and the songs of children. And we thank you that we've been in this place this morning and have been called to worship by the littlest in our congregation. And their joy is exuberant and contagious, and we pray that you would fill us with that this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, there is something kind of rather magical about the Christmas season, isn't there? I mean, I, I love this space. I, I love worshiping in here. It's just a wonderful worship space, but even more so during the Christmas season. I mean, it, it's just transformed, and it, become, it feels even more reverent and special. And, and you can drive through town, and you drive by some you know, dilapidated houses, but now they have Christmas lights on them, and so they're not dilapidated looking, they're, they're quaint looking, right? And, and I, I pull into my driveway, and the lights that I just griped and complained about putting up put me in a good mood the moment I drive into the driveway. All, all the Christmas movies we watch have just wonderful, happy endings. You know, the Grinch's heart grows three sizes, the cynical lawyer, you know, becomes a believer in Santa. Buddy the elf saves Christmas and gets the girl. You know, they all have happy endings. And then there's the, the sweet, sentimental Christmas songs that speak of the kindness of strangers, the, the hope of getting home for Christmas. And it's just all so nice that it could almost trick you for a few moments, almost trick you into believing in the goodness of humanity, almost fool you into thinking that the world isn't really all that dark. And then tragedies strike, and we're conflicted with feelings of, of cheer that turn to grief in an instant. And depravity seems to swallow up goodness. And darkness seems so profound, it's oppressive. It can just seem hopelessly dark. Into the confusion of this, into this darkness, the prophet Isaiah speaks those words, and they, and they come to us this morning and remind us that while it is dark, it's not hopelessly so. Uh oh, our hope isn't in some vain thing like the goodness of humanity or anything so trivial as that. We have hope because God is at work, because God has sent a rescuer, because God will one day set things right and establish perfect peace and justice. In the midst of the darkness of this world, God calls us to put our hope in the salvation that He provides in His Son, 
hope that is real and secure, peace that is everlasting. This morning, our text was read to us as the Advent candles were lit. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. And the prophet reminds us of two important aspects of our hope. He reminds us of the hope that we have in God. The first incredibly important aspect of this hope, the prophet reminds us that our hope, the hope of Christmas, is not in the light of man, it's not in the light of progress, it's in God, who has pierced this darkness with his light. The prophet is amazingly realistic. He acknowledges the darkness. He says there is a people and they they walk in darkness. They live in a land that is overwhelmed by darkness. In Isaiah's context, that darkness referred to the impending invasion of Assyria. An enemy nation that was growing and swelling. The prophet in the chapter before that says it's like a river about to spill over its banks and it's going to flood into Israel and come to the very neck, the very throat of Israel and strangle it. But the darkness that Isaiah is referring to is more profound than the darkness of an invading nation. Matter of fact, it was because of the darkness within Israel, the sin, the wickedness, the oppression and injustice that God was raising up a foreign nation to come and be judgment. The darkness that Isaiah was speaking of was the darkness of the power of sin and the shadow of death. The New Testament picks up on this imagery and it says the whole world Not just those who are oppressed physically by foreign powers, but the whole world lives in darkness because the whole world is under the power of sin and lives in the shadow of of death. Prophet reminds us in his words that darkness is a reality. It's still a reality. It's a powerful reality. By nature, I'm not a worrier. It's caused some, my, my wife wants me to worry more at times, and I just refuse to worry about broken bones or bad test grades or things like that. But if I'm honest, sometimes the darkness in our world causes me great worry. And I can lay awake at night, and what I worry about is the kind of world that our kids are inheriting from us. And I lose sleep over that. I find it hard to fight against that worry. And then what really gets me isn't the the darkness out there that my kids might be exposed to or that my wife might be exposed to, but the darkness that I know still resides in my own heart. My sin is the greatest threat to my family. I know that. Darkness is just a a powerful reality. And and Christmas isn't about ignoring sin and depravity. It it isn't about whitewashing over the darkness and acting as though it's not really that dark. 
The Christmas message is that the world isn't right, but that God has gone to, uh, he, he's gone to dramatic ends to make it right. He's taken drastic steps to set it all back to the way it's supposed to be. The darkness that Isaiah speaks of is profound. Sinfulness runs deep. God has to do something radical to address it. And he does. He comes himself to set it right. Christmas is about God piercing the darkness with his light. About God sending a child, his son, to be our true light. It's about a child who is mighty God. It's about our our wonderful counselor, a, a mighty God who comes to this world perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, who is also everlasting Father. He he cares eternally for his people, and he is Prince of Peace. He establishes a perfect peace and brings with him blessing. Since the earliest days of the church, the church has looked at this passage and said this This must be reference to Jesus. Oh, the reformers that came along in Israel, reformers like Hezekiah and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra, they were great, but they don't fit the bill. This is someone more profound. This must be Jesus, mighty God who comes as a child for us. Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, looked and saw that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, and this passage comes to mind for him. And he says, oh, that's what Isaiah meant. The light was going to dawn in Galilee. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light, he says. John picks up on this theme, and he says, the light has come into the darkness. The darkness hated the light, but it couldn't overcome the light. The light is victorious. Isaiah says the dawning of this light will bring great joy. Like when farmers bring in the harvest and and they celebrate, that's going to be like, a little bit like, the joy that comes when light breaks through the darkness. And the angels, as they announced the birth of Jesus, said, I bring you good news of great joy. That's for all people. That's the first aspect of the hope that this passage reminds us of. The Christmas message is that God sent his light into the darkness to dispel the darkness and to bring us hope. But the second aspect is just as important. The prophet reminds us that though darkness still lingers, it's already been destroyed. 
It's already been destroyed. And the time is coming when this child brings his kingdom and establishes it perfectly. The Advent season reminds us of a tension we experience. We live between two Advents. The first coming of Jesus and the second. We live between Christmas and the end of history. On Christmas Day some 2,000 odd years ago, the light dawned. The child who is mighty God was given. And Isaiah says, he broke he, he, he broke the yoke of our slavery. He took the yoke of our slavery to sin and he smashed it. And he said, here, take my yoke. Take my burden. It, it's light. It's easy. And he took the rod of our oppressor and he smashed it. And he leads instead with a shepherd's staff. He, he broke the power of sin. He broke the power of death. We have been freed from oppression. The sin that we hate, the sin that I hate, it still lingers, but it's been broken. The power of it over me has has been broken. The darkness in this world, it still lingers, but it's been broken because The child has come, and when he came, he brought his kingdom with him. He brought his kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. It's already broken into history. It's invaded our world. When the angel spoke to Mary, he said, your son, your son is going to be called Jesus He's the son of the most high God. God is going to establish him on the throne of David and he will reign there forever and ever. The kingdom was already coming then. Later on when Jesus is asked about the kingdom from the Pharisees, he said, don't you understand? The kingdom isn't some far off thing. The kingdom is now. It's here. It's in your midst. It's in me. I bring it. Jesus talked of the kingdom often. When Pilate was questioning him, he said to Jesus, are you really a king? And Jesus said, I am. But my kingdom's not of this world. But Jesus spoke of a time when that kingdom would come here, when the kingdom that is not of this world, would swallow up this world. He said the kingdom's like a mustard seed. It's starting small, but it's growing. And one day it'll be a full tree. He spoke of the end of the age, when his kingdom is perfectly established, when there's perfect peace and justice and righteousness, The prophet's words come to us and they point us to that. They come to us in the midst of lingering darkness. 
And they beckon us to hope for, to look for a kingdom where there is no darkness at all, no shadow, where we don't even need the sun because the glory of God shines so radiantly. Darkness is banished forever. And God's glory shines. What I love about the prophet here in this passage that was read is how he speaks of this hope. He was writing some 700 years before the advent of Christ. But as he writes, he's mixing his verb tenses. He's talking about it in the past tense. And he goes between past tense and future tense verbs He's talking about something that's still for him in the future, but he can talk about it with such certainty that he says it's already happened. A son has been given. He has broken the yoke. He looks at the kingdom, and it's not just some vain hope, some pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. It's a certainty How can he be so certain that everything was going to be set right? That perfect peace and justice would be established? Well, it wasn't because he trusted in mankind to establish it. He was confident because he said, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Like when Midian was defeated. He's pointing the people back in time, to when Gideon took 300 men against the whole army of Midian and won. And it wasn't because of his might. It was because God was for them. And he says, just like that, the zeal of the Lord won on that day for his people. The zeal of the Lord will do this too. This side of the first advent, this side of Christ's birth, we can look back and have even more confidence than Isaiah had. The zeal of the Lord has done it and will bring it to completion, to full completion when he establishes his kingdom. I love the prophet Isaiah and his words here. They remind us that our hope is in a God who has pierced the darkness and a God who is going to establish his kingdom eternally. But let me ask you this morning, where is your ultimate hope? I read once a quote that said, a man can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but not even four seconds without hope. Our need for hope is is so strong. We need it. Desperately, we need hope. Because we need it so much, we're likely to cling to anything that offers even a glimmer of hope. A couple weeks ago, my my family and I were at an IU football game. It happened to be the IU-Wisconsin game. We walked into the stadium, and the stadium was was filled with hope. Hope of a Rose Bowl. 
The game got off to kind of a, a shaky start, and people were still clinging to hope. Even when the game got out of hand, my kids were still clinging to what proved to be a very vain hope. Maybe we'll return this kickoff for a touchdown. Maybe we'll hold them for the rest of the game and score on every possession, and then we'll be back in it. We're used to vain, false hope in my house. We root for the Indians. It happens every year. We're used to that. Hope is so important that we'll cling to hope wherever we can find it. This is the point where I believe we're, we're really open to Satan's attacks. He knows we need hope. And he's a really good counterfeiter. He offers us fake, counterfeit hopes to distract us from the real thing. Israel was guilty of it throughout their history. They put their hope in, in their armies. But the psalmist says, hope in war horses? Seriously? That's a vain hope. They put their hope in treaties and alliances. And the prophets would come and say, those treaties, those nations you're trusting, they're going to be the very ones that swallow you up. It's a vain hope. Don't trust in those alliances. What do those false hopes look like in your life? What are the things that you're, you're clinging to? Maybe subconsciously. Is it some vain notion, some, some quite silly notion of human goodness? That in the end, the human spirit will triumph? I hope not. Is it in some government plan that all of a sudden our leaders will get it together and pull us off the whatever cliff we're on this week? I hope not. Is it in education? Maybe for this community, that's the biggest vain false hope that we buy into. Oh, education's fantastic. Big fan. But the hope for humanity is not in education. Education cannot cure our sin problem. It cannot dispel the darkness. It gives us better justifications for sin. Where's your hope? Is it in your own goodness? Oh, I certainly hope not. Is it that you think you're going to be able to, through the darkness, pull yourself up? That you're wise enough, strong enough, good enough? I hope not. Maybe you've burned through all your, your vain hopes and you're left feeling utterly hopeless. You don't call it pessimism, you don't call it hopelessness, you call it realism maybe. That's not where God wants you to be. He, he wants to burn up all those vain hopes. Say, don't put your eggs in that basket. And he does that to bring us to the point where we can see our only true hope is in Him. He's the one that's pierced the darkness. He's the one 
that will set things right. He's the one that has already brought the kingdom in his son, who has already brought redemption, forgiveness, who can bring joy, who will establish perfect peace. The Apostle Paul reflecting on this hope says, this hope, this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has already been poured into our hearts. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit that reminds us that this is our strong hope. This is a secure hope. This is a hope that will not fail us when every other hope does. Where is your hope this morning? What is it that you worry incessantly about? It's probably a good indication of where your hope lies. Another question. Christian, you say your hope is in the Lord. Does your life reflect that hope? Or does it betray that you have actually other hopes? Do you worry like your hope is a flimsy hope? Do you grieve like those who have no hope? Do you hoard on to your wealth to your wealth like your nest egg is your ultimate hope? Do you talk about your education as though it's going to guarantee you a job and that's your hope? The hope that we have In this dark world, the hope that we have is a beacon to others who need that hope. Live that hope out so that others can see it. In one way, we're called to live in a bi-directional kind of way, always looking back to the source of our hope, the inbreaking of the kingdom, the coming of the Son who is mighty God. And the victory he has already won. And at the same time, we look ahead to the sure coming of that kingdom in its glory, its power. This week, as with every week, we've been reminded in the news about how dark and, and broken our world is. Uh, The Christmas message isn't that it's not really that bad. The Christmas message is that into this broken, fallen world, God has come. He's come to be Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to set things right. He's come to break and dispel the darkness. He's come to give us perfect peace, and there, there is our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we are, we're grateful. We're grateful that you have not left us in the darkness alone, that you have not left us in hopelessness. We're also grateful that you shatter all vain hopes and you don't let us cling to things that will in the end only disappoint and destroy. You shake us from those so that we can cling only to you, to your son Jesus, who is mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, 
who sits on the throne now reigning and will one day establish that reign forever and ever without end. Father, we pray that you would enable us to cling to that hope when the darkness seems overwhelming. That we would be able to cling to that hope in such a way that it draws others to you. When they wonder how, how can they be so calm, so hopeful in this world? It's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our power. It's because the zeal of the Lord will do it. Thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.